there. Welcome to the Real World NP Podcast. I'm Liz Rohr, family nurse practitioner, educator, and founder of Real World NP, an educational company for nurse practitioners in primary care. I'm on a mission to equip and guide new nurse practitioners so that they can feel confident, capable, and take the best care of their patients. If you're looking for clinical pearls and practice tips without the fluff, you're in the right place. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review so you won't miss an episode. Plus, you'll find links to all the episodes with extra goodies over at realworldnp.com podcast. In this week's episode, I'm going to be talking about interpreting high TSH levels. If you find yourself feeling mystified, worrying about the range to worry, who should be treated, how you treat them, how you monitor them, any of that stuff, I got you. That's what this episode is all about. I'm going to be doing a case study about a patient with a high TSH level to walk you through the steps. Before I jump in though, I want to let you know when I was a new nurse practitioner, I used to dread opening my lab results. I was so overwhelmed and I felt like the lab interpretation resources that I had were either scattered all over the place or not as comprehensive as I wanted. It was just really frustrating. So when I started the Real World NP platform and business, I knew my first course of action was to address lab interpretation for new nurse practitioners. And I have to say that I went from dreading them to kind of being obsessed with them. So I hope that I can help you do the same. And I really got that way through putting together the resources of the lab interpretation crash course for nurse practitioners. So if you want to find out more information, you would like to feel supported with your lab interpretation, all of the main labs in primary care, CBC, CMP, urinalysis and dipstick, TSH, lipids, and the main endocrine labs in primary care, I would love to help you. You can find out all the information over at realworldnp.com labs. However, this episode today, we were talking about a case study, so let's jump in. So if you've been around for a little while, if you've followed me on YouTube, you know that when I do case studies, none of them are actual patients. They're based on patient cases. So none of this is from a true real patient. So just so you know, it's not their real name, demographics, all that stuff. So anyway, let's jump in. I have a patient um, that I saw uh, in real life. It's based off of um, this patient's name. This case study's name is Janelle. She's a 56-year-old female, African-American patient, uh, new patient establishing care, and she was complaining of fatigue. She was complaining of also some heavier periods over the last couple of months that have also been becoming more irregular. She complains of some weight gain, quote unquote, but she wasn't able to really directly identify how much in terms of a quantity. She used to take levothyroxine in the past, but doesn't like taking pills. And so what she said was that she wasn't sure if she actually needed them and would prefer not to if possible. For her past medical history, past surgical history, she has a history of that hypothyroidism, anemia, and cholecystectomy in the past. She has no family history. She does not smoke, use alcohol, or any other drugs. At the time of her visit, her blood pressure was 169 over 79, heart rate of 77, oxygen of 98%, and a BMI of 37. 
I did her physical exam in the visit and generally speaking, did a general exam, cardiovascular, respiratory, H-E-E-N-T exam, as well as a thyroid exam and her extremities. And overall, everything was normal. In this episode, I'm really focusing on thyroid. I'll also touch on the other components of holistic care at the end, as well as really kind of parse out the TSH portions and the hypothyroid portions, although there's definitely more to be said about fatigue workups in general. So anyway, with that in mind, I decided to check some blood tests for her. So I checked a CBC because she had a history of anemia. I also checked her CMP to look for metabolic abnormalities. I ordered a TSH with a reflex, which is the way that our lab orders them. And basically what that means is that you're ordering the TSH test. However, if you get an abnormal result, the lab will reflexively add on a free T4 and a total T3 level. I also checked a hemoglobin A1C for screening purposes related to her BMI, as well as a lipid level. And I tend to order labs based on either guidelines that have been established, right? So screening guidelines, for example, like USPSTF as an example, or American Diabetes Association, et cetera, et cetera, versus um, the medical conditions that you're suspecting. Like for example, ordering a CBC because she has a history of anemia. She also has fatigue as well. So that justifies it. But I try to always have a reason when I order labs, whether I'm looking for something specifically, I'm monitoring something, I'm screening according to a guideline versus I just feel uncomfortable. So I'm going to order labs, right? So that happens a lot in, in healthcare in general, not just for new grads. So I want to talk about her lab results. So her TSH was elevated. The reference range for your TSH varies from lab to lab because the the calibrations, the tools that they're using are slightly different. So always go based off the, the reference range of your lab, but hers was slightly elevated. Our reference range, and I'm using U.S. units versus international units outside of the U.S., and the reference range is about 0.5 to 4.5 approximately. And so her labs came back at 5.5, so slightly elevated. Because I ordered a reflex, her free T4 came back in the normal range at 0.69. Her hemoglobin A1C was 5.7, which is elevated in the pre-diabetes range. Her lipids are overall abnormal. I'm actually not going to get into the breakdown of lipids because in a different video on the YouTube channel, but also on this podcast, most likely I will have the lipid case study as well to go more into depth of that. But for these intents and purposes, her lipids were high. Her CBC and her her CMP were actually normal. So I want to jump into hypothyroidism. I'm just going to pause on that patient for a second. So when it comes to diagnosing hypothyroidism, it's diagnosed by labs, but also by symptoms. And so your TSH will be high and meaning that the thyroid itself is not really functioning as well as it could. And so the brain is sending signals to your thyroid with the TSH to keep working, right? Like the TSH should make it perform appropriately, but then when it doesn't, your brain tells your body to make more and more and more TSH, right? So the high TSH correlates with a lower functioning thyroid. And actually, I just want to pause here and say that the guidelines and interpretation that I'm 
is talking about here apply to non-pregnant adults only. So this does not apply to pediatric patients and it does not apply to pregnant adults. Those have their own specific parameters and guidelines. So definitely do not apply these to pregnant patients or to um, pediatric patients. So when it comes to hypothyroidism assessment and management, there are three main steps. Step one is to first look at the lab that's in front of you. How high is the TSH, number one, subsection of that point? And then what is the free T4? Because really you can't see the full picture of hypothyroidism unless you have both of those values specifically, TSH and free T4. Total T3 is important, but not as important in hypothyroidism. So I want to get into that kind of like first part first. So you really need to look at both. So again, the TSH reference range depends on your lab. And so my lab is 0.4 to 4.5 milliunits per liter. And so that isn't, like I said, in standard U.S. units, but there are international units that you can convert if you're listening outside of the U.S. And the next thing to look at is that free T4. And I just want to be super clear that it's not the total T4 because that is the, the portion of T4 that's bound to protein. And it's not really clinically relevant for this specific situation. So free T4, your normal range, again, will vary lab to lab, but you just want to look and see, is it in the normal range or is it not? The next thing that you want to do when it comes to an elevated TSH, it's important to verify on repeat sampling because that's consensus model, consensus level of evidence. And it has to do with sometimes TSH can vary from day to day, but you would just, before you want to take any actions with treatment, you want to just repeat the TSH with the free T4 to help confirm that this is in fact something that is continuing to be elevated. There aren't really any absolute dangerous numbers. Whenever I do lab interpretation and I teach lab interpretation, one of the guideposts that I recommend my new grads have is knowing those absolute red flag dangerous numbers. So when it comes to hypothyroidism, the worst case scenario is that basically like myxedema coma. And those you can more readily evaluate because they have overt symptoms. And that's typically based on the symptoms. The highest TSH level that I've seen is about 25, 25-ish. And it's not necessarily like, oh, wow, it's 25. We need to act right away. You still want to act appropriately and in the appropriate time period, but it's really based on whether or not they have those symptoms, right? And then the kind of subset of looking at the actual number of a TSH and free T4 is that you want to look at overt hypothyroidism versus subclinical. So I want to talk about that. So overt hypothyroidism refers to a TSH that's elevated and the free T4 that is low. So it's like your brain is telling your thyroid to keep working to make the appropriate amounts of free T4, but it's not really responding anymore because the TSH is high and the T4 level is low versus subclinical is when the TSH is elevated, for example, 12, and the free T4 is still in the normal range. So the thyroid is still functioning and the free T4 is still at the appropriate level, but it's showing you that the, the thyroid is potentially working a bit harder to get there. 
And then also the subclinical kind of category also is dependent on symptoms, which I'll talk about in one moment. So subclinical, I want to, let's get into that. So for example, if someone's TSH is greater than 10 and they have a normal free T4, they have no symptoms, you could consider treating those patients because the TSH level is so high. And likely if their TSH is that high, they have some sort of underlying autoimmune thyroid process that will likely continue to progress. However, in patients who are ages 65 and up, especially if they have cardiac disease, the norm of TSH is actually higher. It's actually okay for somebody in the age range of 65 and over to sustain within their normal range to have about a TSH of 10. We actually don't, it's not recommended. Guidelines do not recommend treating a TSH under the level of 10 for patients ages 65 and up because of the risk of adverse effects. However, for a TSH level that's less than 10, and again, this is in the U.S. units, and they have no symptoms, you can recheck those in about three to six months, depending on the scenario. And then there's always that question of a TPO antibody, if you're familiar with that one. Basically, that's thyroid peroxidase antibodies. And you don't have to check those to diagnose somebody with hypothyroidism. The reason that it's helpful is in patients who have a TSH of, that's above the normal reference range, for example, if it's seven, but it's less than 10, theoretically, you could check to see if it's an autoimmune hypothyroidism with that TPO antibody to see if it's that Hashimoto's versus if on recheck, it actually goes back to normal, there is such a thing as a transient hypothyroidism. So that would be the reason to check the TPO. You don't have to do that. That's typically, again, for those subclinical patients with no symptoms, an abnormal TSH, but it's less than 10. Okay, so step one in terms of hypothyroidism diagnosis and management, again, just to recap, is how high is that TSH and what is their free T4 telling you? And that helps you break it down into overt versus uh, subclinical hypothyroidism and it also helps you decide those next steps of how soon to recheck it. So the next piece is figuring out if this is a new diagnosis or an established diagnosis. And what I mean by that is that a lot, especially with lab interpretation, that is so, so, so important that you actually look back and see if there were any labs done previously that you can compare to right? Because that gives you so much more information than if it's the very first time that you've seen this. And also there's very, there are several types of hypothyroidism. The most common reason, which I've already alluded to, is autoimmune Hashimoto's thyroiditis. You can also have things like a transient hypothyroidism. It can be a response to medications. It can be in response to either radiation or surgery to the neck area. There's also central hypothyroidism. So you always want to look at the previous labs as well as the clinical scenario. So a couple of examples of how those clinical scenarios can influence your thought process and decision-making is that there are several reasons they can have that transient thyroid um, issues. Like, are they postpartum? Do they have recent head and neck illnesses? 
again, medications, recent surgery, radiation, and then looking at the other labs that you potentially have as an abnormality and whether or not the symptoms match up or not. So I want to stop and and talk about some drugs for a second to keep an eye out for. The main medications in primary care that can affect the thyroid levels, luckily there aren't too many in common use. Lithium is the most common one that I see anecdotally, followed by amiodarone. And there's also a, a few smattering of others, but they're way less common in primary care. Interferon alpha, interleukin-2, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and then certain immunotherapies. So I think the general rule of thumb is if you see an unusual medication in primary care, think about how that affects their whole clinical picture, regardless of whether or not we're talking about TSH or if we're talking about another clinical scenario, right? Okay, so let's recap. So step step one, how high is the TSH? What is the free T4? Number two, is it a new or established diagnosis? And are you looking at the other clinical pieces that could influence this whole picture? And then the last piece, which I've sort of already touched on, is about their symptoms. Are they symptomatic or not? The main symptoms for hypothyroidism are cold intolerance, fatigue, constipation, dry skin, hair loss, weight gain, and menstrual irregularities. If we can recall back the case study that I started this episode with, she's got a lot of those things, right? She's feeling fatigued. She has some weight gain, menstrual irregularities. So something to think about, right? Patients may also have things like bradycardia, diastolic hypertension, delayed deep tendon reflexes, and they may or may not have a goiter as well, an enlarged thyroid gland. The other thing I always ask about just as a routine safety measure with patients who have either hypothyroidism or some sort of thyroid condition is asking if they have dysphagia or compressive symptoms. Is that like a potential sign that they have an enlarging thyroid or nodules or masses that might be causing those symptoms in their neck, which would prompt me to get imaging a lot sooner for those patients. So if we start with those first three steps, looking at their symptoms, whether it's new or established, as well as the actual TSH and free T4, we just want to think about putting those pieces together with the next part, which is, do they get treatment or not? So if you've de- you need to decide first, is it overt or subclinical, right? Which has to do with their symptoms combined with the actual TSH and free T4. You want to rule out those alternative options. And then if you make the decision to start levothyroxine for them, you then need to monitor their labs and their symptoms, right? So I'll break that down even further. Let's just hop back into that case study for a second. So for Janelle, I actually, like when I initially did this case study for the YouTube channel, I feel a little differently now than I did before. And I think it really highlights that there is an art of medicine that you get to use your clinical judgment and decide. So I think what we may have ended up doing is actually not pursuing treatment for her. So if you remember back to her lab, her TSH was 5.5, which again, tying all the pieces together, her TSH was abnormal, but it was less than 10. Her free T4 was normal. However, she was symptomatic. And then also she doesn't want to take medications, right? There are many right answers here, actually. So you could either treat her or not treat her because she's she's technically subclinical, but she's symptomatic. 
So we could offer her the option to treat her, or we could monitor her and continue the fatigue workup to see if it's actually something else. I think for the purposes of this episode, I'm just going to say that we started her on medications, right? So if you were to start this person on medication, even though it's technically subclinical because she's having symptoms, you have that risk benefit discussion with her, and then you could start that medication for her. So the main treatment for hypothyroidism is levothyroxine. So you can either start at 25 micrograms or 50 micrograms and then increase the dose from there based on the TSH level. And I'll talk about that more in one second. But basically, you want to recheck their TSH in about six weeks with that free T4 because that's how long that half-life takes for the body to, to catch up with the actual level. So if you really wanted to, you could check it sooner. It's just not that helpful of a piece of information prior to six weeks after starting that medication. So I want to talk about Janelle's management. For example, if we chose to treat her with medications, we would choose levothyroxine. And again, you can either do standard dosing, which means you pick a dose and then you go from there and you titrate based off of the lab results. There's also an option to do weight-based dosing, which is 1.6 micrograms per kilogram per day of their lean body weight. I'm not interested in that because it actually starts patients on a lot higher dose than I feel comfortable with. So I always do a weight-based, or excuse me, standard dosing, and I choose 25 micrograms for patients who are over the age of 65 because they tend to be more sensitive to medications, physiologically speaking, versus patients under 65. I start with 50 micrograms, but all of that is up to your clinical judgment, right? So if you don't feel comfortable starting with 50, if you have a patient who's very sensitive to medications, start with 25, right? So again, you start the levothyroxine, whatever dose, you check their TSH with free T4 in six weeks. And the goal is for them to get back into the normal reference range. I actually did an endocrine rotation as part of my nurse practitioner education, and there are some clinicians who have a preference of keeping the TSH in a very narrow range between one and two. However, according to AACE guidelines, the goal is actually just to keep, keep them in the reference normal reference range. And again, it's okay to be under 10 for the ages of 65 and up, right? So if they're eight, don't bring them down to a normal reference range if they're over the age of 65. If they were highly symptomatic, if you were very concerned about them, first of all, definitely tie in either your supervisor or your colleagues, but you could check it in three weeks just to see if it was on its way to marching down, right? And each adjustment is either 12 to 25 micrograms each time. And that's really based on your clinical judgment, whether it's up or it's down. If it's really close, then I will do 12 micrograms. If it's still got a ways to go to the reference range, then I might go 25. It really, it really just depends on the person. Luckily, the dosing for levothyroxine comes in those increments. There's 25, 50, oh gosh, 75, I think is maybe the next one. So maybe there's not a half step in between those two, but there's 88, there's 100, there's 112, 125, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of options uh, for you to, to change the doses. And you really just have to kind of do this in real life, in real practice to see how things shift 
And then the other thing is every patient is different, but typically I err on the side of lower dose changes, that 12 microgram dose instead of the 25, if they're super close. And again, you just repeat the whole thing over again. So for example, Janelle's was very close to the reference range. So likely she just needs a little bit of levothyroxine to bring her back to the reference range versus somebody who has a TSH of 25. I would likely start them on 50 micrograms and then probably go up a lot quicker for that person. But then again, that tends to be your clinical judgment, right? So a couple of pearls of practice about hypothyroidism before I wrap up. Levothyroxine is T4. There's something called Armor Thyroid, which is actually um, porcine sourced, I believe. Actually, maybe don't quote me on that one, but it's it's the quote unquote natural version that's either from cows or pigs, which is important to differentiate for your patients. So again, don't quote me on that. Um, but yeah, the, for the quote unquote natural one, it is, it is desiccated thyroid tissue. And so because of that, there's actually irregular dosing and that can be a lot higher risk. I typically do not prescribe that. And if they are really committed to doing that for themselves, um, I recommend them collaborating with an endocrinologist for that. The other thing is that the way that we learned about levothyroxine is that it needs to be on an empty stomach. So you see patients who set an alarm for like 4 a.m. to wake up, drink a bunch of water, and then take their levothyroxine. However, there are other expert opinion sources and evidence that say that it really doesn't actually matter if it's on an empty stomach or not, as long as they consistently choose that method and the TSH levels are in the correct range, right? So if they wake up, eat breakfast, take their levothyroxine, their TSH and their free T4 in the appropriate ranges, it doesn't actually matter. Some cases, some patients may need higher doses in certain settings depending on their comorbid conditions. So nephrotic syndrome, for example, wastes a lot of protein. And so those patients likely need higher doses Celiac disease has some absorption issues. Certain medications like uh, phenytoin, rifampin, carbamazepine, phenobarbital, those types of things can, can interfere, as well as there are very, very, very specific considerations for pregnancy that can have hypothyroidism can contribute to teratogenic effects. So I really do not manage that myself unless it's in direct collaboration with a maternal fetal medicine provider who can give closer guidance and or an endocrinologist. So just to wrap up with Janelle, so whether or not, again, or the example of this case, we treated her. If we didn't treat her because she really didn't want to take medications and her TSH was only slightly elevated, we could recheck it, see if it's persistently elevated or not, and then also consider a further fatigue workup, which I really, again, I'm not getting into in this episode, but you want to think about things like ask more history questions about sleep hygiene, about is she snoring at night? Does she need an evaluation for sleep apnea? Do we want to do more labs, even though her CBC is normal? Do we want to check any iron? studies to look at her iron stores. Cause you know, fun fact, if you're fit, like, if you're capturing somebody with anemia, who's got depleting iron stores, their hematocrit and hemoglobin might still be normal, but their ferritin levels, which is a marker of their iron stores might be dropping or might be super low. Their hematocrit and hemoglobin just hasn't been affected yet. So you can still be symptomatic with, you know, oncoming anemia with a low ferritin level. So I could potentially choose that for that patient 
I could have chosen it from the beginning uh, to check that, but I wanted to check the CBC first because I didn't necessarily want to go down that rabbit hole. But again, that's a clinical judgment piece where you get to decide that. And so she definitely needs, again, not in this episode to talk about these things, but things to not forget to address for a patient like this is continued fatigue workup, um, considering a further evaluation for this perimenopausal menorrhagia. Um, Does she need an ultrasound because it's a heavier flow than usual? Like that kind of thing, thinking through those clinical decisions. And are there any other labs that we need to think about for that? We also need to address her hypertension and whether or not this is a one-time reading or a persistently elevated phenomenon, we need to definitely not forget about that. We need to have a discussion about prediabetes and hyperlipidemia as well. So for this patient, because there are so many moving parts, she needs to come back on a more regular basis. There's no way that one person can address all of these things in one visit, right? These are all chronic conditions that need to be managed over time. So for this patient, I had her come back in about a month for a full physical exam, which also includes a longer visit time in my clinic, or it used to, it doesn't anymore, but that's a different story for another day. Um, But I would have her come back in a month for a longer visit time to have all of those conversations. So anyway, that that is all, that is the whole uh, case study for Janelle. That's our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review, and tell all your NP friends so together we can help as many nurse practitioners as possible give the best care to their patients. If you haven't gotten your copy of the ultimate resource guide for the new NP, head over to realworldnp.com guide. You'll get these episodes sent straight to your inbox every week with notes from me, patient stories, and extra bonuses I really just don't share anywhere else. Thank you so much again for listening. Take care and talk soon.